Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Nicole. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nicole. Hey there, Shelly. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. How's your week been? Oh, very busy. Very good. How about yours? It's been busy as well. Yeah. I think we had slowed down a little bit, but now it's picking back up and I'm getting more people interested in the sleep consults as well. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been keeping me busy. And we are recording this November 3rd. So yes. how is your Halloween? Did you do anything? Grace went with her girlfriends and they had, it was just a small group of them that have been getting together the last few months, uh, her closest circle. And they went and had, you know, they dressed up and they ate all sorts of junk food and whatever, but she was home late that night. And um, I never, for the first time ever, I never had a bowl of candy because our town did say we could trick or treat if the lights were on, whatever. But I haven't been getting a lot of trick-or-treaters the last few years, so I said, nah, I won't do it. But then that night, I felt so sad, like I was missing out, because I love the kids and seeing everybody, so I was kind of disappointed, and I'm disappointed that I have no chocolate to eat right now. (laughs) Like, why didn't I get some stuff? But it's okay. How about you? What do you guys do? So I think we had talked about my town did not cancel trick-or-treating right. all the surrounding towns did yeah I canceled trick-or-treating for our kids yeah yep. and we had planned to hang out at home and just watch scary, spooky movies so that's pretty much what we ended up doing we didn't even turn our light on um it had snowed because this is New England right. <laughs> and I guess right. based on the post in my local town group there were quite a bit of kids out on trick-or-treating but we didn't see any on our street. And we had a friend over with her daughter that they're kind of like, I work with her at the hospital. So they're kind of in our isolation pod. Yeah. Um, And so we just had them over and we did a scavenger hunt with the candy and they played video games and we had some Halloween drinks and just sat and talked. And it was nice because, and I think I mentioned this before, I hate trick-or-treating. I hate it. I'm that kind of parent that I'm like, oh, I like Halloween. I like Halloween makeup. I like Halloween decorations. I hate going trick or treating. Right. So it was probably the most fun Halloween. Good. And the kids still got plenty of candy, and I got to pick through some of it because Hunter is still sweet. So. He's like, Mom, I know these are your favorites, so I saved them for you. Oh, I love that kid. Yeah. And they made um they made glow in the dark slime. Oh fun. And all of this was thrown together by Sasha. She's like the party planner. She is like the cool Martha Stewart. Do you, do you know? What I mean? <laughs> I see her cakes that sometimes she posts. I'm like, I want one of those. She's yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. As soon as I came home and I was like, I was talking to John and I was like, oh, by the way, you know, Maria's coming over and she's like, oh, 
we're having company. Can I be in charge of making everything pretty? And I was like, if you want to do all the work for this, be my guest. Because this is absolutely fine with me. And she came up with this. She wrote out a menu that she decorated with pumpkins and stuff and Ah. all planned out. And I took her to the store and she got all the ingredients for the slime and everything. And it was really good. I think they had a lot of fun and she kind of like ran the show. She was like, okay, it's time to do candy and okay, it's time to do slime. <laughs> so fun. Yeah. Nice. So well, the best part about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fun, fun. Good. All right. Let's do our favorite of the week. Okay. I'll let you go first. Okay, so we were talking about holidays coming up and Thanksgiving is literally in a few weeks, which blows my mind. Um, And it's definitely my favorite holiday. Um, I do host, I'm not sure what it's going to look like this year, because Mm. now we're going to have more restrictions. I, I don't know what to do. I have five kids. So um, who have partners in their lives, some of them. So I don't know. But anyway, but my favorite of the week would be how do I, because I have normally hosted between 20 and 30 people every year. Um, So I guess my favorite of the week this week is going to be a tip. How do I do it? How do I get it all done? And the truth is, it's always cooking as much as you can ahead of time. Not everything can you make ahead and freeze and have the quality stay the same, but there's plenty that you can. So I always freeze the make and freeze the stuffing ahead of time. Like I might even make that next week and freeze it. Um, I do pasta and stuff. So I might make a pasta thing that I'll totally assemble, not bake off, stick it in the freezer. And you make your own pasta. Like you home make your pasta. I do. Some of it. Yeah. Some of it I do. Not for Thanksgiving and other week too much. <laughs> And I will make ahead of time the butternut squash that I roast it and then I mash it and do the maple syrup and butter and everything I would normally do, freeze it. Um, Cranberry sauce, I make homemade. I also do the jarred because there are some of us who really like the jarred jelly stuff out there, but I also make a homemade one. I can totally freeze that. So it's always just being super prepared. And then the day before Thanksgiving, all those frozen things get stuck in the fridge early in the morning. And by the time Thanksgiving day rolls around, they're totally defrosted and ready to be warmed in the oven. It's not a problem. So it just makes the whole thing easier. Another thing I do, which is a really weird trick is I like two turkeys because one gets totally eaten. And then I like to have one for leftovers, but I make the one, the extra one, the day before Thanksgiving. And I make my gravy because that's kind of like a last minute thing. And I'm, you know, me with cooking, like I'm pretty neurotic and I like things a certain way. So I'll make the gravy and I'll stick that in the fridge. I'll have a whole big thing of it. So that way I just have to warm it and you're not last minute over the stove making a mess, making a gravy. So it's all about being prepared. So that's my favorite of the week. Wow. <laughs> I'm always so, I love hearing, I always love hearing you talk about cooking because it is my so favorite. out of my realm. I have not cooked in like two years. John, <laughs> and on the nights, if he's not home to make dinner, it's like, what are we ordering now? <laughs> and it's not, I used to cook all the time. So I know yeah. I can, I just hate cooking. I hate it. Yeah. It's not your thing. Baking. Yeah. Cooking. And so usually John, so most, usually we have Thanksgiving with his family. 
but yeah. they moved to Texas this year. Oh, right? that's right. So, and my family doesn't really do Thanksgiving. And even if we did because of the pandemic, we wouldn't get together because, you know, my stepdad's yeah. on chemo. And so yeah. isolation is important um, for them. So, you know, the kids keep asking me like, what are we going to do? And I'm kind of like, I don't know. Right. Right. I'm not really even a fan of Thanksgiving. So I would be perfectly yeah. fine if we just ordered a takeout and watch movies and not really right. do anything at all, you know. Right. So. And maybe that's what it will look like for you this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it has to look a certain way. I think it just has to be what you're happy with. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. I think it's about being together and having the spirit of it, being thankful and but I don't think it needs to look it doesn't have to be a big turkey dinner. Right. Especially, especially, especially if you've just had a baby. Right. Oh, pandemic my or no pandemic. If, That's you, right. if your family, if you are the one who normally hosts Thanksgiving or whatever holiday and you just had a baby, it's a good year to pass that off to someone else. <laughs> Right. I and totally I, agree. When I work with families, I am amazed around the holidays how stressed they get because they're not able to pass it off or they attempt to pass it off and their family gets upset because it's like, oh no, it's the tradition that we always come over your house. And I have seen it work well in some families where they still host it at the new parent's house, but the family comes over and does everything, cooking, cleaning, everything. Right. So I think right. if you have a family that would do that, it would work. But otherwise, if you try to like put together this huge holiday meal, when you just had a baby, you're going to turn crispy and fry. Yep. That's exactly right. I agree with you. Yep. For sure. Yep. Totally agree. I think, um, I knew somebody who had a baby. This is like going back 10 years ago. She was part of a new mom group that I was facilitating at the time. And her family had, nobody had the space to host the way she did. And her baby was only going to be like a few months old. And so they literally did what you suggested, brought everything. Mm. Like her mother came early in the morning and like everything just took care of everything. And that it can be whatever works, or you can just say, you know what, between having a new baby and the pandemic, we're going to postpone Thanksgiving till next Thanksgiving. (laughs) We're we're not going to worry about it. And that's okay too. It has to be what works comfortably and brings you an amount of peace that shouldn't be stressing you out. Right. Yep. And my family was good. I believe it was after I had summer. We were living with my mom at the time because we were saving up to buy our own house. And she had always hosted Thanksgiving. And so technically it was her hosting Thanksgiving, but it was in our area of the house that we were living in. And my family did an awesome job of showing up with all the dishes. And I basically just sat on the couch and nursed summer all day. And that that ended up working out well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. So my favorite of the week is called Morning Sidekick Journal. This is so corny, but I love it. So about like, probably about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, as you know, Nicole, I started having some weird funky things going on with my body, like numbness on the left side of my body and swelling and other things were going on. And so I kind of embarked on this journey to kind of take better care of myself. And one of the things that I did was I started getting better sleep. I used to stay up till like midnight or one in the morning, and then I would get up at like 5 a.m. to work out. So I was consistently running off of four hours of sleep. 
I have this um, subscription box that I subscribe to for fitness people. And I got a, a box the, and there was the morning sidekick journal was in it. And basically it's a habit building journal where it encourages you to be a morning person, but it makes it very clear that what time you consider the morning is subjective and completely up to you. So while they kind of encourage like early morning, yeah, you know, sometimes early morning is 10 a.m. And that's okay. Right. They take you through this month-long journey where they start to put up um, like a routine. You start to build a morning routine. And the studies show that people who have morning routines are more successful. Hmm. And so now I'm on their second one and it's amazing. And I feel so much more prepared for my day because it gives you spaces to like journal what your day was like, what you hope the next day looks like, what you're going to do in the morning to set yourself up for success. And I wish that I had this when I had babies because I feel like I would have been much more organized and not kind of like all over the place. So, yeah. And they have yeah. one, they have like a workout one. They have a gratitude one. I actually just wow. and like bought their whole collection because. Wow. I'm like, so oh. cool. Gimme, <laughs> <laughs> gimme. Yeah. yeah that's called, coffee it's on uh, the morning sidekick journal. Conquer your nice. mornings, conquer your life. Nice. I love it. Hey everyone, I know that having a baby can be a little overwhelming and confusing. If you're looking for a place where you can get all your childbirth prenatal education needs, visit ShellyTaftIBCLC.com. Nicole and I are offering right now an online virtual childbirth educating education class, a prenatal breastfeeding class, and we're soon launching a prenatal newborn care class and a prenatal sleep education course. So you can learn all about infant sleep even before the baby comes. So I'm going to drop that link in the notes and you can check it out and we hope to see you there. Let's move on to our question of the week. Yes. So this week's question is, anytime I take my baby out for a car ride, she falls asleep in the car seat. Is it okay to let her sleep in the car seat once we get home or do I have to wake her up to take her out? What do you think, Nicole? (laughs) It's definitely recommended that the baby comes out of the car seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I know, I know. And I know the feeling because it's like killing my heart because I'm like, I was totally that mom. Like, just stay asleep. Yeah. Don't move the baby. Oh. Yeah, but it is yeah. recommended that the babies do not sleep in the car seat longer than the car ride because the position of the car seat kind of encourages their chin to drop through their chest and that can drop right. their oxygen levels in some babies. Yeah. The other thing that we want to think about is we're very much a container culture where we keep our babies in things. We keep them in pack and plays. We keep them in car seats. We keep them in strollers. And so now we have a very high rate of babies with flat spots on their heads. And I think it's something like over 40%. So yeah. So if your baby is sleeping in a container, especially one that encourages their chin to drop down to their chest, they, they are more likely to have that oxygen drop, but also it's kind of encouraging that spot to start to develop. So flat on the back is better. So like a, like a flat surface is fine, but especially if they're like, that's, that's pretty much why they recall the rock and place. Right. That, yeah. It's because it dropped yeah. production levels. So, so as much as I hate to say it, if your baby, right, exactly. you, bring, you bring the car seat in the baby bucket, 
take the baby out and try to transfer them slowly into something else that's more flat for them to sleep on or even better on your chest off their back completely so that they won't get that round, that flat spot on their head. Right. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add? (laughs) No, I just, I, I feel, I, I hate that question because I feel so bad for people because I remember what it's like, especially if you have a kid that just won't sleep easily Mm -hmm. and they are the kid that falls asleep in the car. And it's true. We've got safety first. It's just totally, we just have to adjust. Right. Yeah. Yep. And babies who are smaller, like maybe they're, if your baby was small for gestational age or premature or more at risk, um, absolutely accident levels. So especially if, if you're in that situation, you definitely don't want to let your baby sleep in the car seat that long. That's right. Home, take That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I hate, cause I'm such a huge fan of lazy parenting, <laughs> like do whatever works for you, you know, like just totally do it. Me too. Yeah. But in, the, in these cases, now when it comes to safety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where if it's a risk safety wise, health wise, we just can't take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we cut corners in other places, yeah. you know, just whatever. <laughs> Yeah. We don't do Thanksgiving. There you go. Yeah. Um. <laughs> you can tell you're really sorry. I can't host Thanksgiving because exactly. my baby will only sleep in the car seat or in my arm. So it's going to be in my right. arm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, I know. I, I feel bad for parents in that situation, but it's just true. Mm-hmm. Safety first. Yeah. But that was a great question. I'm really glad yeah. that, that question. And if you have questions that you want to ask me and Nicole, you can email them to Shelly at Shelly Taft IBCLC or you can DM us on Instagram at Shelly Taft IBCLC. And next up, we will be speaking with our guest of the week. Excellent. This week, I am so excited that we are talking with Maria Petty. She is a certified lactation counselor and an IBCLC candidate. And she is here to talk to us today about breastfeeding in the hospital. Hey, Maria. Hi. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'd love to. I became a CLC probably, let's say, four years ago now. And I did it because I really struggled with breastfeeding with my daughter. And I reached out for support, but never really found anything helpful as often as a lot of us that get into this profession really have encountered. Like we get into it because we needed help and we didn't find it. And then I was lucky enough to land the gig at the hospital, which is really uncommon, especially in Massachusetts, and really jumped on the opportunity to be able to practice and get experience in that kind of setting. And it's been really amazing experience for the last few years. And I've gained a lot of insight and perspective, which is really helpful. And then you convinced me to go for the IBCLC. And so I'm almost there. (laughs) I've got like six more months before I can take the test and just a little bit more of the pathway to complete, but I've got all my clinical hours. So mm-hmm. if I do that, then I can really start helping people a little bit more. So I'm excited about that. And you're going to rock it. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that's my goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your primary setting right now is, is the hospital setting, which is an extremely different world than private practice. Right. Um, yeah. The yeah. They're all different. The parents are all different and they're fresh from the oven. So breastfeeding on the first few days can look a lot different than, you know, the first week or two or three or beyond. Right. I also imagine that there's a little bit more flexibility outside of the hospital. In the hospital, we have such strict parameters that we have to follow. Right. 
right? There's a lot of limitations with working in the hospital. Yeah. When we're talking to parents about what to expect in terms of breastfeeding and breastfeeding support in the hospital, I think a lot of parents, sometimes I hear like, oh, we don't need to take a breastfeeding class or meet with a lactation consultant beforehand because the lactation consultants at the hospital will just help us. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, if you get to a hospital that has lactation consultants, you're very lucky because a lot of hospitals don't. Or if they do, it's very limited day, like they're not there every day. So you might get there during a span of time where the lactation consultant's not even there. For example, the hospital that I gave birth at, I asked, I, I think postpartum, I was there for two and a half days and I didn't see anybody until day two. And so all I had were the nurses, the nurses there to help me for at least the first 24 hours. So if you get to a hospital with dedicated lactation staff, you're lucky, number one. Number two, the range of experiences that you might encounter it could be pretty wide, mm-hmm. especially among lactation staff. And that, and that really is just, I think, the lactation world in general. Everybody has had really wide experiences. Mm-hmm. And some people tend to be really by the book and some t- people tend to be kind of all over the place. So there could be very rigid help or very flexible help. It's just going to really be depending on where you're at. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think there are some hospitals where they do have an IBCLC, but it's, it's also a nurse that's, that's doing regular nurse work. Her role is not dedicated exclusively to lactation support. Right, right. I think that's what most hospitals, honestly, is that they have maybe a handful of nurses that they have either convinced to, to pursue the IBCLC so they can have that extra credential or you know, maybe it was somebody who was a nurse that was like, hey, I could use this extra credential here in my work. So why don't I just go ahead and pursue it? And then like you said, they're doing their regular nursing shift and then and just being used for lactation support in addition to that. So right. it could definitely be pretty wide. Exactly. It's good marketing for a hospital to be able to say like, yes, we have lactation on staff. Right. That doesn't mean, like you said, that they have a solely devoted individual. For lactation. I mean, I hate to say it, but it could be somebody who's not really that supportive of breastfeeding. Like if they did do it strictly for the credential or because it looks good for the hospital, then they may have gotten all the education, but they're just not like their heart's not in it. And I really feel that in this particular profession, having your heart in it is really important. I completely agree. Yeah. I think in order to be a quote unquote good lactation consultant, you always have to be willing to keep learning and never stop attending advanced trainings. And then we also have hospitals where, you know, lactation, even if they have a solely devoted lactation staff, they're not there on the weekends or holidays or they're there only half days. So if you go and give birth on a Friday Right. You're kind of out of luck. You might be discharged without seeing a lactation consultant at all. Or having seen them for like five minutes. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's my next question for you is, can you describe like on your typical shift, how many dyads or moms and babies or parents and babies are you expected to see in what amount of time? Yeah, that's pretty wild. So my typical shift is maybe seven hours and it can range pretty wildly. Like, you know, on a really quiet day, might be eight people. That's really unusual. An average is probably 15 to 18 dyads in a seven hour shift. 
And, you know, if everybody's doing well, then, you know, it's a check-in, you leave your contact information and hope that if that um, couplet needs help, that they'll reach out. But if you happen to be on a day where everybody is struggling and everybody needs help and everybody's calling you for help, then you might be jumping from one room to the next, to the next, to the next. And as soon as you walk into one room who just called you for help, you might be getting a call from another room. So you might just have that five minutes to jump in, get that family going, mm-hmm. and then run to the next room and be like, okay, I'll try to swing back, but call me if you're having struggles. Mm-hmm. So it can definitely be a wild ride, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish we could clone ourselves. <laughs> right? I know. So does every mother in the hospital wish you guys could clone yourself. <laughs> yeah. Just stay with me. They want you to go home with them and everything. I but know. I have a question for you, Maria. Yeah, honey. Can we talk about skin to skin and what the first 24 hours are going to look like for moms? A beautiful question. Parents. Yeah. I mean, that first 24 hours is usually um, the most stressful, especially for first-time parents, because... Babies don't want to do anything on their first day. They were just born. It's exhausting. And especially in a hospital setting where you might have had 20 different interventions to get that baby born, that baby is going to be tired. And that first feeding might be awesome. You know, for most babies, their first feeding is great. And then the next 24 hours is just a struggle to wake them up. So skin to skin is a really magical practice that basically just helps babies to adjust to the outside world, if you want to think of it that way. Their strongest sense is their sense of smell when they're first born. So just imagine that they've been smelling you for the last nine months. And now if you take them away and throw them in this cold, lonely bassinet, they're probably not going to be the most super responsive. But if you keep them up against your body, skin on skin, not like the baby dressed not like over your Johnny or something like that, but you you take that top down, let those Mm -hmm. boobs free girls (laughs) (laughs) and put that baby up against your body. I mean, that's home for the baby and that's going to help them adjust to the outside world. But I mean, beyond that, we even know scientifically all of the amazing benefits of skin to skin, especially in the first 24 hours, babies can have irregular heartbeats, irregular breathing, irregular body temperature, irregular blood sugar, all of those things just in the normal course of adjusting to the outside world. Right. And skin to skin contact will help them start to regulate all of those body systems. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yep. Very good. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the question. Mm. And what should parents look for in terms of like feeding on that first 24 hours? What advice would you give for that specific time period? A start with skin to skin. I mean, honestly, parents should just be living skin to skin that first 24 hours if they can. And I know that for a lot of moms, they're going to be exhausted. They just had a baby as well. And this is where partners come in handy as well. Partners should be doing skin to skin as well, especially for that first 24 hours. But you should be looking to learn how to position your baby. If you've got a nice, quiet, sleepy baby on day one, learn just how to hold your baby at the breast. That's like... The biggest struggle that I find with a lot of moms is that they just are so awkward. They've never had to hold a baby at the breast. They've never known how to hold their own breast when they're trying to position um, this little 
newborn boob monster to try to get everything going. So learning just how to hold your baby when you're breastfeeding is really important. And being able to do that before the baby is screaming and hangry in your face can be really beneficial. And, you know, yeah. So speaking of holding babies at the breast, a lot of nurses and sometimes lactation support as well, they have like one position that they favor because that's the one that works for them the most, or that's the one they're most comfortable teaching. But I'll tell you that babies can nurse in all kinds of wild positions. And with newborns, even though they need a little more support because they're brand new and they don't have the strength yet, there's still some pretty creative positioning you can do with the right support to get a comfortable feeding. So practicing positioning in those first 24 hours, practicing just learning how to wake up your baby, learning how to take them off of the breast, all of those things can be really helpful in those first 24 hours when the baby's still kind of quiet and not day two when they're screaming at you. Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) I love that point. Like kind of get comfortable with, you know, especially if it's your first baby, is your first baby, you feel like they're made of glass. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're afraid of their neck. You're afraid of their head. By the time you have your third, you're like, here, catch. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. when you're first, it can be super awkward. So to just even just hold the baby, never mind, position the baby at the breast, try to figure out how the baby gets open wide. And you're right. You don't want to try to be figuring that things out once they start cluster feeding. Yeah. Yeah. When they're hangry every 30 minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, and yeah. Some babies do come out and they're not that sleepy and they feed very frequently in the first 24 hours. But in our experience, and I think Nicole, you'd agree too, that the first, for most, I think due to our birthing practices, more than anything, our babies are kind of wiped out that first 24 hours. So if you have a baby who is sleepy and not too interested in eating, what would you tell parents? Is this something to be concerned about? Um, what tips would you give them? Yeah, I always tell my families on day one, enjoy your baby on day one while it lasts. And don't panic when they don't want to eat. I mean, in most hospital settings, we're just not going to expect that much out of a baby on day one. There's always the occasional maybe panicky nurse or pediatrician that really wants to check those boxes and make sure everything's going according to plan. But my advice to parents on day one is just enjoy it. Enjoy this time while you've got it because this is never going to happen again. <laughs> um, tomorrow, today's baby is quiet and sleepy and they just want to snuggle and that's awesome and enjoy that and do that as much as you can. Tomorrow's baby is going to be a wild, ravenous beast and is going to want to <laughs> eat all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And just to Shelly's point, like there is the occasional baby that wakes up hungry and wants to feed regularly from day one. And that's amazing. And then there's also the occasional baby that has their day switched where on day one, they're feeding all the time. And then day two, they're sleepy. Mm -hmm. Right. For day one, just wait, just wait. Mm-hmm. snuggle the baby skin to skin practicing hand expression I mean hand expression and breast massage are going to be your two best friends um, get really familiar and comfortable with touching your breasts mm-hmm. yeah because when that baby's nice and quiet and sleepy practicing that hand expression learning how to express some colostrum into a spoon or directly into the baby's mouth if they're even just trying to mouth and lick a little bit can be really helpful mm-hmm. sure Exactly. Because we know that, you know, if you're pumping when you have colostrum, 
you're yeah. not going to get really. That's really discouraging. <laughs> yeah. It's more for stimulation and less right. about volume. And if there is a medical reason why your baby would need to be supplemented from the beginning, like maybe there's blood sugar issues um, or something like that, that's a good time to start hand expressing into a spoon like you just yeah. Yeah. Hand expression. And I would say for families before they even get to the hospital, learn how to hand express. It is not something that just comes naturally. I have so many moms that are like, I've tried to get some colostrum out, but there's just nothing there. It's a skill and it takes practice. And if it's safe, I would say start practicing a couple of weeks before your due date. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As long as you don't have a high risk pregnancy. Yeah. If you start to feel like Braxton Hicks, then stop. Yeah. And also it's a great way to stimulate labor when you are in labor. So exactly. if your actions are like slowing down, go ahead and do some hand expression. I've, and I've known a few families who are actually pumped during labor. To get right. I don't know if I would recommend that as much, but yeah, hand expression is great. Yeah. And speaking of pumping, for most families, you really just don't need to start pumping right away in the hospital, especially if you're on day one and you've got that sleepy baby that's not interested in eating at all. I get a lot of moms that really kind of start to panic and they're like, oh, my baby's not eating yet. I should, maybe should I start pumping? Please don't. (laughs) Please give it time. And I know that's really the hardest thing for a lot of families is that waiting game is waiting for that baby to wake up and waiting for that baby to start showing that they're hungry and they're willing to latch and things like that. But really take the advice of your nurses and if you have it, your lactation staff, if they're telling you, you don't need to start pumping yet, listen to them. If you do need to start pumping, I guarantee you somebody's going to be like, Hey, let's get you pumping. Mm -hmm. Right. But for the most part, just like you said, Shelly, it can be really discouraging to start pumping when you have colostrum. There's not really, the pump is a terrible machine that really just stimulates without actually I hate to use the word extract, but without extracting, you know, it doesn't pull any of that colostrum out. It's just a pump Mm -hmm. vacuum. Right. You're more likely to get more volume with hand expression anyway. Right. Right. You would be better off doing that instead. Yeah. And if you are practicing hand expression after delivery and you don't see any colostrum, don't panic. A lot of moms that get a lot of fluid during labor probably have some edema and some swelling, and that can affect your breasts. I mean, if your ankles are swollen, you may not feel like the rest of your body is swollen, but it is. Mm -hmm. And all of that fluid in your breasts is going to impede the ability of your colostrum to come through. So this is where breast massage can be really helpful as well. Massaging your breasts and moving fluid back into your body. Yeah can all be really beneficial. And there's varying techniques for breast massage, therapeutic breast massage, reverse pressure softening, just standard breast massage for um, hand expression. All of that stuff would be really, really beneficial to learn before you actually get to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's like any skill, you're not going to feel very competent at it at first, but you get really good at it. I think I told you this story, Nicole, before, but I went to a heavy metal concert to see my cousin play and the lead singer in the band that played right before him was a female lead singer. And halfway through a song, she whipped out her breast and started like spraying milk. (laughs) (laughs) I just remember feeling like so impressed by your hand expression skills. 
Everyone else was horrified. Shelly's like, that is an excellent technique. Right? No girls could do that. Right? Yeah. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. There's a lot to get used to. Another question I have is, can we talk about rooming in with your baby versus sending your baby to the nursery? Yeah, that's a tricky one. I mean, everything tells us that the baby should be rooming in with you. And to be honest, the first time I sent Morgan to the nursery in the hospital, I cried. (laughs) I cried and cried and cried because they were taking my baby away, even though they were going to bring her back in a couple of hours. And it was, and she was literally just around the corner. I was like right next to the nursery. I cried. Like that's my baby. You're taking her away. It was important. She had some issues and I wasn't able to stay awake and watch her. (laughs) If you're recovering well, your baby's fine and just normal sleepy, nothing crazy is going on. Nobody's worried about Mm -hmm. the baby spitting up or um, aspirating or blood sugars, temperatures, things like that. Keep your baby in the room with you. We know from multiple studies that babies that room in with mother, everybody sleeps better you will have more opportunities to practice breastfeeding if the baby's in there with you. You don't have to worry about somebody, you know, bringing the baby back. Oh, it's been two and a half hours. Where's my baby? Which I'll get to that in a second as well. But if the baby's there with you all the time, you can see those early feeding cues. A lot of times nurses are bringing the babies back when they're already crying. Now you have a hangry baby. Right. And hangry babies are really challenging to latch. Right. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. So you've got the baby in there with you. You can see them when they're giving you those early feeding cues before they're hangry. You've got the frequent opportunity to practice breastfeeding, especially when babies are cluster feeding. You need them there with you so that you can respond to all those early feeding cues and not have to wait for somebody to bring the baby back to you. That being said, if you have sent your baby to the nursery and you're wondering where they are, you can go get them. Mm-hmm. The nurses don't tell you that because they, you know, for whatever reason that you've sent the baby to the nursery, or they've taken the baby to the nursery. They want you to, you know, be in your room and relax. And especially during times of COVID, they may not really want you wandering the halls, but you're not a prisoner. Mm-hmm. You can go out and find your baby. You should ask the nurses, where's the nursery and have them show you where it is. So you know where your baby is. Mm-hmm. Don't wait for them to bring the baby back. If you just needed to take a shower and you needed somebody to watch the baby, that's fine. And then when you're out of the shower and you're ready for baby to be back, either call your nurse or go find them. Right. You can go get your baby. It's your baby. Mm. So that's number one. Number two, there are definitely circumstances where maybe mom is too tired. Maybe the baby's spitting up a lot in the first 24 hours and somebody needs to watch and make sure the baby doesn't aspirate. It's okay to send your baby to the nursery for a little bit. It's not going to be the end of the world. They will bring the baby back. If your goal is exclusive breastfeeding, though, I would make it very, very clear that the baby's not to receive any supplement in the nursery. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, keeping the baby in the room with you is going to be the better option. Everybody's going to sleep better. You know exactly where your baby is, and you can respond to all those early feeding cues. Right. 
Right, because you can't do skin to skin if the baby's in the nursery. Can't do skin to skin in the nursery. And even like normal newborn care, like if the nurses are changing all the diapers for you because you're sending the baby to the nursery a lot, you're not going to go home feeling that confident about like, how do I change this baby's diaper? How do I care for the umbilical cord? How do I, if everything was done for you by the nurses in the nursery, you're going to feel like deer in headlights when you're Yeah. And that's actually an awesome segue, Shelly. Thank you. A lot of nurses and even some lactation staff are going to be very handsy when it comes to helping you learn to breastfeed. Now, this is really awesome when you have no idea what you're doing. Maybe you've had, maybe you've tried and you've had some painful feeds and you get somebody to help you that gets the baby uncomfortably. And now you know what it's supposed to feel like. However, if they do that for you every time you're trying to breastfeed, you're going to have no idea how to do it when you get home because somebody's been doing it for you for the last two to five days. <laughs> so always try to practice without help. I mean, obviously call for help if you're struggling, but you should always try to do it yourself or ask for hands-off help, especially with, I think nurses in particular can get really handsy because that's their job. And you should be advocating for yourself and be like, hey, can you keep your hands, you know, hands off help and walk me through this without touching me? Mm -hmm. A lot of nurses aren't even going to ask if it's okay that they touch you first. They're going to assume it because they're your nurse and it's their job to touch you. Lactation staff should always be asking permission before touching you, number one. And if you want to do it yourself, be honest and say, no, I want to do this. Can you just talk me through it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's just basic respect. Um, I remember with my first, when I gave birth in the hospital, the lactation staff person walked in, did not introduce herself and kind of just grabbed my boob and shoved my baby on and was like, okay, she's on and like walked out of the room. Right. There's definitely staff out there like that. I feel like if you're not sure how to latch your baby and someone is helping you, that's great. But then before they leave, say, do you mind if we unlatch the baby and I try it all on my own? Right. No. Now that I've seen how you do it and you've explained it, do you mind if we practice again? Right, right. And then, like you said, they should always be asking permission. I always ask permission. Is it okay if I touch your breast? I even ask the baby permission before I start. Like, yeah. you know, like I tap their cheeks and wait for their mouth open to give me permission to do an oral exam or whatever. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I definitely heard some stories from moms about some nurses that can be a little bit too aggressive. But speaking of that, I feel like we've segued into all of these little <laughs> topics very nicely. <laughs> You kind of have to be a little assertive with your baby in those first few days in particular. A lot of moms have seen all those really sweet baby-led latching videos that are really nice and they're gentle and they're lovely, and it really doesn't work for most babies, especially in a hospital setting where you've had maybe a lot of interventions. Mm -hmm. Your baby might be a little disorganized for a few days. They're going to sit there at the breast, open their mouth and waggle their head around and have no idea what to do from there. It's your job as mom to be like, here, let me put you there. (laughs) And I think this is more common with first-time parents, obviously, because they are afraid that they're being too rough with the baby or they're afraid they're going to hurt the baby. But once that baby's mouth is open, you have to be quick. Open mouth, push baby on. You have to be a little assertive because babies 
they'll open and close their mouth. As soon as they get that little tickle around their lips, they're going to close their mouth down. They're like a little snapdragon. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And if you miss that window, you blink and you missed it. You keep trying. Try some again. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. So it, practice being assertive with the baby. Open mouth, push baby on. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to break the baby. Right. Not- Everybody's afraid you're going to hurt the baby. Yeah. No way. You, you got to be assertive. You got to help them learn. Mm-hmm. So they have all of the instincts. They have all of the reflexes, but they don't have the skill yet. And that little bit of assertiveness is going to help them learn that skill. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so, well, again, going back to skin to skin, because it is that important. That's why we talk about it all the time, because putting them skin to skin kind of primes all their reflexes and gets them in a the state of mind that they need to latch mm-hmm. on. Right. I have so many babies that are sleepy and tired and they get to the breast and they just conk out. And then I put them up skin to skin with mom. And all of a sudden they're rooting and they're looking and they're opening their mouth. And you're like, Hey, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I know that we had talked about um, not pumping for if breastfeeding is working out, but what situations would you recommend pumping right away while you're still in the hospital? Like right away within the first 24 hours or right away after the first 24 hours? Actually, I'll talk about both. Before, before I yeah. So if you had to be separated from your baby for an extended period of time, especially on day one. Let's say you deliver a full term, but the baby has to go to the NICU for observation for some time. Maybe they're having breathing issues or blood sugar problems. That's the time to start pumping right away because you're going to be separated from your baby for long periods of time. Um, They may not be latching at all. And getting that stimulation can be really beneficial, especially in those early days, I would combine pumping with hand expressing because Mm -hmm. just like we said with the pump, you're probably not going to really be taking anything out with colostrum, but it's going to be good stimulation. Yes. Hand expression, you're going to get probably a teaspoonful, which is awesome. A teaspoon is a lot more than you think when you're talking about colostrum, but that combination, you're going to get the stimulation and then the actual reward at the end. So anytime you have to be separated from your baby for an extended period of time, especially on day one, it would be beneficial to start pumping. Or let's say um, mom ends up in like a SICU set setting or something like that, and maybe baby can't come up to you if you can start pumping or if you have a partner there that can help you pump while you're away from your baby, that would be really beneficial. Day one. If it's past those first 24 hours and mom's recovering fine, but baby's just not doing well for whatever reason, um, some babies get jaundice in the first 24 hours even. Or let's say they get jaundice on, start getting jaundice on day two, or maybe they have high weight loss. Maybe they're not peeing and pooping very well, things like that. I mean, there's like a long list of reasons. Maybe baby can't latch. Maybe they have some oral restrictions or unknown reasons. You know, I hate to say it, but there's definitely a lot of reasons where we're going to be scratching our head going, I don't know why this baby doesn't want to latch. I don't know why this baby doesn't want to feed. And that would be a a reason that we would get you pumping. Mm -hmm. Some babies just take longer than the couple of days that you're in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And that's all there is to it. I mean, I would say that a lot of what you're going to see in the hospital or a lot of the help that you're going to get in the hospital is going to be just enough to get you home. There's going to be a lot of babies that aren't going home exclusively breastfeeding well. And if you're one of those families, you should already be looking for some sort of lactation help once you get home. 
Right. Because even the lactation stuff, like you were saying, Marie, it's not unusual to have like six hours to see like 18 people, 18 diet. So our goal is to make is that you can go home. Like the baby is feeding enough or getting enough nutrition in their peeing and pooping. Everything looks good. Then you can go home. But the goal is not... I shouldn't say the goal is not to go home exclusively breastfeeding. It's just that it doesn't happen that way. Yeah, right. And honestly, in hospital settings a lot, I feel like that's the more common thing is that there's so many families that start out breastfeeding in the hospital, but by the time they go home, they're not necessarily exclusively breastfeeding for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. The hospital is not a good place where you can get, unless you have like skilled lactation support, they're not really going to give you a plan for weaning off the supplement and getting back to exclusive breastfeeding. They're assuming the pediatrician is going to address that. And many times, you know, pediatricians can address that, but sometimes the pediatrician's like, well, whatever you're, you know, the baby's gaining, right? whatever you're doing is working. So just keep doing that without any real support of like, how can we make the baby more efficiently or solve what is going on so that we can stop this whole like pumping and supplementing. Yeah. Or even identify what's going on. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of times in the hospital where they're not going to take the time to identify why the baby's not breastfeeding or breastfeeding well, because that's not necessarily their goal in the hospital. Their goal in the hospital is to get everybody home healthy and on a path to recovery. Mm -hmm. Right. And I like to think of breastfeeding as like another vital sign. And at the very least, another reflex. So, you know, if the baby cannot latch, (laughs) (laughs) if the baby cannot latch and the baby cannot feed well, there's a reason why. Right. But they're not really going to explore that in the hospital. Um, Like a pediatrician friend that we say this all the time, like if you took your child to the pediatrician and said, you know, my three-year-old can't walk, they wouldn't say, oh, well, that's okay. We have these wheelchairs. You know, right, right, right. right. Try to figure out why. But if you take your baby to the pediatrician, you're like, my baby can't breastfeed or can't suck or whatever. They're kind of like, well, just give a bottle. That's a okay. right. bottle feed. Yeah. Um, without trying to address the issue. And that rarely happens in the hospitals. They will make sure that the baby is fed. Um, hopefully, they will also be protecting your supply by getting you pumping. And I would just add, like, any time that you're supplementing, you should start pumping. Yeah, that's um, a good one. Yeah. But they're not going to do an in-depth assessment to try to figure out what is going on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're lucky, you're going to have some pediatricians in the hospital that are really supportive of breastfeeding and they'll really push, you know, the many paths to get you to a place of some kind of breastfeeding. And it might be pumping just to make sure that, you know, you're protecting supply or they might ask you to supplement at the breast if you're supplementing, things like that. But yeah, their main goal is to make sure that the baby is fed and recovering. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So they don't necessarily, everybody says they want that exclusive breastfeeding goal, but the goal is to make sure everybody is is fed and well. Which is the priority, like that should be the priority, but there's not enough time to go beyond the priority. Right. And I would also add that if you do have a risk factor for a low milk supply, such as breast reduction, hypothyroidism, um, gestational diabetes, it might be worth starting so, yeah, br- pumping early on. Yeah. And to that point, 
ask your OB for a prenatal breast exam. Mm -hmm. If this isn't your first baby and you have a history of low milk supply, maybe getting some blood work. Like if you don't have a, a known history of thyroid issues or hormonal dysregulation of any kind, but you have a history of low milk supply, it might be worth talking to your OB about, hey, can we do a blood workup and see if there's something off? Right. Or better yet, a lactation consultant. Like yeah. We can work with one prenatally. We right. can do breast exams. We can kind of explore your medical health history and kind of talk to you about like the yeah. appropriate labs that might be helpful. Exactly. Yeah. I think everybody should be taking a prenatal breastfeeding class regardless. Mm-hmm. And don't settle for the class that's like part of another class. If you're doing like some sort of hospital birthing class and they say that they're going to talk about breastfeeding at some point in time, <laughs> that's nice. Mm-hmm. But get do something separate that's exclusively talking about breastfeeding because you're going to get a whole lot more information. You're going to be given a whole lot more resources with a prenatal breastfeeding specific class than you would if it's all piled into Right. Maria, what can you tell us about for parents? What about day, like the end of day two going into day three and day four? What should they expect at that point? So this is about when they're going home or right before they're going home. Expect a baby that wants to feed a lot and doesn't necessarily want to sleep. I say it so often, but enjoy that sleepy baby on day one, because by the time you get to day two, they're not sleepy anymore Mm -hmm. until they have a full belly. And sometimes You know, we always talk about feed the baby every two to three hours. Make sure you're waking the baby for feeds. Make sure you're looking for peas and poops. This is all all the things we talk about on like day of discharge. Every two to three hours is the minimum. Mm -hmm. And so many parents get so discouraged when they have a baby that wants to feed all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And frankly, there just are some babies that want to feed a lot. Right. And like feeding every hour is... On the high end, but not abnormal. Right. And if your baby is latching well, like you shouldn't be, if you're going home on day three and you're still having, let's say, like active pain with breastfeeding, something's wrong. I always tell my moms, you shouldn't be anything more than a little bit sore or a little bit tender. If you're sitting there cringing during the feeding, curling your toes or closing your eyes and trying to count to 10, something's wrong and you need to be reaching out for more support. So if you're going home and breastfeeding is still painful, if you're going home and you're supplementing and everybody's told you, well, at least the baby's feeding, but you wanted something better, reach out for more support. If you're going home on day three and you don't feel confident, reach out for more support. Even if everybody's telling you that breastfeeding is going great, Mm -hmm. but you don't feel confident with it, reach out for more support. Right. Whether that's a breastfeeding group or one-on-one consult or be careful with the Facebook groups, but they can be helpful too. (laughs) I know. Yeah. So the baby groups can be really hit or miss. There can be some really good quality ones out there where you get great, accurate, support. And there can be some really dangerous ones out there Mm -hmm. that not only undermine your um, breastfeeding goals, but maybe give you some really inaccurate information. I'm still blown away by the amount of myths that travel around the world still that women are still being told about breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Things like it's supposed to hurt in the beginning. 
It's not it's supposed not, to hurt. It's not supposed it to hurt. It's not a hazing yeah. that you have to go through. Yeah, it's yes. not. Your nipples aren't going to get tough. They don't need to get used to it. Right. That is not how breastfeeding works. I cringe hearing those things. I know, right? Like, no, it's supposed to. No, it's not. Oh, no, yeah. I always look at moms and I say, how cruel would nature be right. if, if it was designed to hurt to feed your right. baby? Right. And let's just think, stop and think about this for a second. How far would we have gotten as a species right. if it was supposed to hurt to feed your baby? Right. right. That's right. I we totally wouldn't have gotten very far. Yeah. <laughs> right. We would have stopped feeding right. babies a long ass time ago. That's right. <laughs> Don't take that out of your head. Take the the notion or yeah. the idea that it's supposed to hurt out of right out, head. Right out of the gate. Yeah, uh, that you talked about like the cluster feeding because yes, you go yeah. from like oh my gosh, my baby won't eat to oh my gosh, my baby won't stop eating. Yeah, right. And then yeah. lots of crying. They're quite fussy and they cry a lot on days three and four too. Yeah, usually the parents cry too. Yeah, crying uh-huh. is normal for everybody. Everybody should be crying. Yes. <laughs> everybody should be crying and yeah fussy babies day two is a fussy baby they are awake now and they want to eat now and they're hungry hungry being hungry is not a comfortable sensation right mm-hmm. even as an adult nobody enjoys being hungry mm-hmm. when you're hungry you want to eat right and if you get to the point where you're hangry even adults are going to be crabby that's right your baby is also going to be farting and pooping and there's just a whole lot more going on in that little tiny body. And it's not comfortable. And it's all new. Yeah, it's all new. They never had to do any. They've never experienced hunger before. They've never experienced having to have a bowel movement before. Farting is a new experience. Like gas pains are a new experience. All of these things are really uncomfortable for a brand new person. They are a brand new person. Mm-hmm. And they're probably going to cry about it. I would cry too if I had to poop for the first time. Being a baby's hard. <laughs> it is hard. Also, speaking about that, it, it's probably going to be an uncomfortable experience for mom too, pooping for the first time. And most, yeah. most of the time it is. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. When they <laughs> offer you the stool softeners. Take it. Take it. <laughs> yes. Even Drink if you lots of water. If you're having an issue. Take yeah. it anyway. <laughs> One time time when I was also working there, I stepped into a patient's room and she was in the bathroom and she said, I'm in the bathroom trying to poop. Can you stay outside the door? (laughs) You know what? Yeah. I love that. support. Yeah, exactly. Like I get it. I remember. Cheer you on. Like if you've got a lot of stitches or tearing, having that first bowel movement can be a little scary. It is. A little PTSD for some. Yeah, exactly. It is not a fun experience. So now just imagine if you're a brand new person that's never had to do it before. Right. Everything's different. Yeah. Like, what the heck is my body doing? Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to tell you, babies don't, they can't multitask. If your baby is trying to poop and eat at the same time, it is going to be a wild ride. I mean, just to give them a minute. Right. And, and, and just stop sucking and sit there with the nipple in their mouth with exactly the concentrated look on their face. And you feel like little bellies <laughs> And as yes. the adults were like, What are you doing? Get back to what you were doing. Yeah. All of a sudden you hear a <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> then you start sucking again. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I tell moms the most commonly, if your baby is fussy at the breast, farting up a storm, stopping and staring at you every once in a while with like a deer in the headlight look, <laughs> kicking and wiggling, there's clearly something going on down below. You're going to have to give them a minute. He, they're not going to be able to concentrate on breastfeeding. They're probably going to be on and off the breast a lot because every time that they try to push that little bowel movement out, it's going to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. There's just not, everybody's like, well, what can I do? Not much. You have to give them just to give them time. If they're latching on like comfortably, you can keep putting them on the breast between those little pushes of bowel movements because the breastfeeding is going to be soothing to them. The sucking is going to be soothing to them. If they are just beside themselves and won't latch, then you need to to find some other soothing techniques. Um, Burping is a great soothing technique I find for most babies, especially if you're bouncing a little bit. So if you can get up and walk around and hold the baby and do some, some burping, that can be soothing for the baby. Sometimes skin to skin is not soothing in that situation. (laughs) Sometimes the baby's just too uncomfortable that you're going to try to do skin to skin and then they're going to scream in your face. Mm. But yeah, if your baby's really fussy in that moment, you you just have to give them a minute. Yeah. Yep. Is there anything else that you want parents to know about breastfeeding in the hospital? You're going to encounter a really wide range of knowledge and support ability. And again, some nurses only know one way to do breastfeeding. And that's not a knock against them. That's just the way that they know. That's the way that's worked for them most of the time. And so that's the way they do it. Um, But I I can tell you so many times um, moms are like, well, the nurse had me do it this way, but I don't really like it. No problem. Let's try something else. Mm -hmm. And you can ask your nurse to show you something different. Be like, this is not comfortable for me. It's awkward. Is there something else you can show me? Mm -hmm. And ask for help. I think is the biggest one. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a mom's room. She's not really doing great. Maybe her nipples are a little bit damaged. She's struggling to breastfeed, but she, but they never call for help. Family never calls me for help. And to be very honest, back to this point of, of having, you know, I have a, a lot of families I have to see in a very short period of time. If you don't call me for help, I may not come back to your room. Mm-hmm. because I may be going around to a bunch of other rooms or maybe I've had a few other people that have called me for help. So if you haven't called me when you need help, I may not see you again. Mm-hmm. So calling for help, call, 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 call for help. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're struggling at all, call for help. If lactation's not there, call your nurse for help. Yeah. You're not bothering us. That's our job. That's yeah, exactly. Take advantage of us. Exactly. We're there. We're literally there for you to call us for help. (laughs) So we should be going in. We should be talking to you and introducing ourselves and telling you what to expect out of your day. In our hospital, I have an iPhone. I put my phone number on your whiteboard in your room. I am there for a short chunk of time, but if I can help you, you should be calling me. Great. The other thing I would say is if you're not comfortable with who's helping you, ask for somebody else. Mm -hmm. You have the ability to ask for somebody else to help you. And outside of the hospital, I always tell parents, you know, having a lactation consultant come to your home is a little bit like therapy. 
we have to be really up close and personal with you. We have to get very personal with your body and the baby. And if you're not comfortable with us, find somebody else. Mm-hmm. And it just could be a personality match. Maybe our personalities don't match. You don't like the way that we talk to you or how we explain something. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Everybody has different communication styles. So if you're not comfortable with who's helping you, ask for somebody else. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much, Maria. Is there some place that you want to let parents know where they can reach out or find you and learn more about you? Well, you can find me at the hospital. <laughs> can I say <laughs> can I say what hospital I work at? <laughs> I don't know if that's allowed. So Yeah, so right now I don't do any private practice because I am only a CLC. But for now, if you're looking for lactation support outside of a hospital setting, you can go onto zipmilk.org. It's a really great website for home visit lactation support. And eventually, once I get my IBCLC, then you'll be able to find me on there. Great. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was so helpful. Yeah, I loved it. (laughs) Thank you, Maria. You're welcome, Nicole. (laughs) Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaffIBCLC.com, where you can check out our online parenting community, The Baby Bistro. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaffIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave a rating on iTunes so that we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks.